God bless you, sweet ladies. You're nearly the end of the semester, and you have been faithful and hung into the end. God bless you all. Does everyone have a handout for tonight's teaching? We are going to be looking at the mercy seat. The mercy seat. If you need a handout, please raise your hand, and one will be placed in it forthwith. Looks like you guys canvassed the block, so everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. Now, tonight, before we go on to the subject of our study, the mercy seat, I want to do uh, just a tiny bit of review to set the stage. In Numbers chapter 16, and this has been a couple weeks ago, we talked about the rebellion of Korah. And the very next chapter, chapter 17, after this incredible uh, display of God's judgment against rebellion and sin, a group of men rose up again against Aaron and his leadership. And so the Lord tells them all to bring their rods. Now, you know, in the old days, the shepherds would have both a rod and a staff. So God is telling these men who are in rebellion, he says, I want all y'all to bring your rod to the tabernacle. We are going to lay them down in front of the testimony before me, says the Lord. And then I will choose the man that I have ordained to be my high priest. And so they lay those rods out there and the next morning they come back and Aaron's rod has budded from a dead stick to a fruitful branch. It is in every stage of blossom and fruit of the almond tree. And it's from that story that we understand the typology that the almond is symbolic of the resurrection. It was just a dead stick. And now here it is completely fruitful. But all those other sticks are still laying there just as dead as they were the day before. And so Moses gathers up all of those rods and he takes them to the men. And each man now must come and get his rod back. And I've often wondered as I look at that picture that God told every single one of those men, Aaron is my man. He is my choice. A miserable experience to be sure. But what mercy God displayed that he did not do what he did yesterday with Korah and open up the ground and swallow these men. But ever after, every time that man reached for that rod to take it in his hand, he would be reminded of his rebellion and his willful defiance of the Lord. And hopefully, every time they took hold of that symbol of their fruitless pride, they would remember God's mercy and that they would learn genuinely to seek the Lord to thank him for the mercy that he shed forth on them, but also to be content with the lot that the Lord had given to them. He allowed them to be servants of the Most High God at the tabernacle, just not in the tabernacle. And he was telling them, I have mercy on you. Now walk in humility and be content. And I don't know about you, but I have had to learn this same kind of lesson. I've had these attitudes and these thoughts before myself. 
and how gracious God is to show me through the example of scripture and to confirm it to my own heart that it is to walk humbly with the Lord in whatever he has called me to do in that particular time. And the task for me is made infinitely easier when I remember the mercy seat and all the lessons we are going to learn here tonight surrounding this place, keeping these lessons in the forefront of our mind. And God has issued us an open invitation to meet with him right here. Before we go ahead and enter the tabernacle today, I think it's always important for me to just do a vocabulary check. Uh, when I first started studying the word, in my head, both mercy and grace were syn synonyms. I could not in my own mind, separate the two words. But as I continued to study and to read, I noticed that when God spoke of them together, there was always that pesky little word and between them. So there was an obvious differentiation. I just couldn't quite wrap my mind. What's the difference between grace and mercy? And I studied and I got out my Bible dictionary and different things, but somehow it just would not take hold in my head. Until one day, my grandmother told me a story, and I've shared this with you before, but I think it bears repeating here just so that we have clear in our minds what is the distinction between mercy and grace. So years ago, now this is in the mid to late 30s in Ohio, my mother and her one of her older sisters was being prepared by grandmother to go somewhere, somewhere fancy schmancy. So my grandmother got them all dressed in their prettiest clothes, these beautiful white dresses, big bow in the back, a big bow in their hair, and their dark auburn hair curled into these beautiful ringlets. And then my grandmother, whose name is Thelma, said to the girls, now Susie and Sally, mother's going to go get dressed and ready to go, and when I'm ready, we will leave. So off she goes. She comes back out a short time later, and there's no Susie, there's no Sally. Now where in the world could those girls have gone to? And then she catches out the corner of her eye something through the window, out in the backyard, on the split rail fence. And she looks out there, what in the world is going on? What have those girls got up to? So she goes charging out there. And long before she reaches them, the smell hits her. And then she finds out that in the idle moments that were left to these two little girls, probably six and eight years old, they decided it would be a fun thing to throw bricks into the outhouse. Splash! And now these two little girls in all their finery, they are covered from head to toe with the fruits of their labors. And being violently ill, all they can do is hang themselves over the rail of the split rail fence. And that's where my grandmother found them. And here is the difference between grace and mercy. Grace sees our guilt, and there was no denying it. These two girls were guilty from head to toe. All their righteousness was filthy rags. And Grace could take one look at that guilt and say, I love you, and I forgive you. Now hop off that fence, go down to the creek, and when you've washed all the debris and the chunks off, come back, and we will be restored to fellowship. But Grace is not the only thing that shows up this day. Because mercy comes along and sees our misery. And again, no doubt about it, these girls were miserable. So grace sees our guilt. Mercy sees our misery. And mercy goes over to the fence and plucks us off. 
and transfers all that mess onto himself and then gently cleanses us from all unrighteousness and wraps us in his robe of righteousness and fellowship is restored. So when I look at the lessons of the mercy seat, I am aware that my guilt has been taken care of outside in the courtyard at the altar of sacrifice. And now God, almighty God, has opened me, opened me away and he invites me to come to draw near and I will meet with you here at the throne of mercy. And so we are going to pick it up about there as we look at your handout to see the building of and the moving of instructions. But I would like to point out a couple of these PowerPoint slides as they go by because all semester long, when I've done a piece of furniture, I have just gone onto the internet and gleaned images off, artists' renditions of what this piece of furniture may have looked like. And so I just want you to get a couple of ideas in your mind about what it might look like. This is the Hollywood version. May, many of you may be familiar with this movie. And it's pretty accurate to the truth about the dimensions and the decoration. But this next one I think is interesting, just for the pure expand your imagination version because nobody really knows exactly what it looked like we have a physical description here but when you read about the angels you can keep this one in mind and think how would you like to carry that through the wilderness that would be a little cumbersome and hard to manage i think then this next one is what the ark of the covenant and the mercy seat look like in the temple institute in israel today now, the real Ark of the Covenant is somewhere, and the people who need to know where it is know, and they're not worried about it. But this is a model they have built, and the one they have on display in the Temple Institute. And the next one is a computer-generated model of what the mercy seat may have looked like. So the consistent thing that you will see there, we are about to read here in uh, the Exodus chapter 25 reference that you have in the building of. And just for the sake of review, since it's been so many weeks, I want to point out that the building of references that you have on your hands, handouts are in three sections. That is when God first invited Moses to Mount Sinai and gave him the Ten Commandments and the blueprints. The second time the tabernacle furnishings are mentioned is when they actually build them. And the third time is when they set up the tabernacle the first time and inaugurate it for the service of worship. Then you have the numbers reference for the moving of numbers chapter three and numbers chapter four. And the mercy seat is always moved with the Ark of the Covenant. God looks at this as a single piece of furniture. It is a unit to God. We took them into two sections just because of our study. But the Lord always considers them one thing. The location, of course, then is atop the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, behind the veil. The materials used to build it, solid, pure gold. And it is adorned with these two solid gold cherubim. And you'll notice as we go that there's no acacia wood as an underpinning. This is a solid gold slab that covers a lid of sorts for the Ark of the Covenant. And the dimensions then match the dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant. So it's roughly three and three quarter feet long and two and a quarter feet wide. 
So we will begin now by reading God's instructions to Moses when he had him up on Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 25, verses 17 through 22. And we read, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubit wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold, make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. Do you get the impression with this repeat, repeated phraseology here that God wants us to understand that there's two on each, one on each end? All right, verse 20. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another as opposed to them being back to back. So they are facing each other, and the faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give you. There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony. I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. This becomes one of God's identifiers, he who dwells between the cherubim. So that pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, in some fashion, the Shekinah glory of God appeared there between the cherubim. And remember, this is a model of the real deal in heaven. I imagine when we get to heaven, we are going to see amongst the myriad of myriads of the angelic heavenly host, I expect to see at least two flanking the throne of God, because this is a model of that. And I'm always astounded when I go through this again, that almighty God would deign to meet with frail, sinful humanity right here. It's an exciting and a fearful idea to me. If you think about this, that the sovereign God of the universe has issued this open invitation to draw near to him, to fellowship with him, mere man in communion with God, and he paid the price of admission. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 for your notes. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This incredible mercy seat, it was magnificent, made from the solid, pure gold, those two incredible cherubim on either end, wings outstretched, faces turned toward the mercy seat. You know, the apostle Peter was a man who knew a lot about God's mercy. I love Peter. I identify greatly with him, not because he was a big, burly, rough, tough fisherman, but because he was a boaster. And very often, he got caught in the boast. And it would give way to abject failure on that fateful night when he denied Christ three times. He knew what it was to be completely forgiven. And he knew what it was to have his fellowship with the Lord restored. And then to be put into the ministry. He knew grace and mercy intimately. He was able to write in his first epistle, we'll turn here in a minute if you want to start heading this way, First Peter chapter 1, 
verse 3, he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you're familiar with the story, you may remember that when Peter denied the Lord that third time, a cock crew, and he looked across the courtyard, and at that same moment, Jesus was being dragged across the courtyard. Here was Peter, all that bluster and blow now just shattered, and he stands there empty and bereft, and he looks at Jesus, battered and bruised and bloodied, and their eyes meet. And I've always thought of this heartbreaking moment with great sympathy. But I think that as Peter looked at the Lord and all his pride was gone and he's just left really empty, the look he received back, what was Jesus' face like? I don't think Peter got a look, uh-huh, I told you so, Peter. Aren't you ashamed of yourself now? Rather, I believe Jesus looked at him with an, it's okay, Peter, I understand. I love you, Peter. And that broke Peter's heart. And he left that place inconsolable. And what did he do for the next three days? What was going on inside this big, tough guy when the light of the world was gone? And he knew that he had failed utterly and completely. I believe that John, the beloved apostle, who was no wimpy, mamby, pamby, milksop kind of guy. He and his brother were called the sons of thunder after all in these days. I think that John went and got hold of Peter and drew him in and kept him close and watched over him for those horrible, dark three days. And I love that on the morning of the resurrection, it was those two men who ran to the tomb to discover that it was empty. And it was an angel who appeared to a group of women and gave this, this uh, uh, missive that I think must have encouraged and also uh, humbled Peter yet again when the angel said, tell his disciples and Peter that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Heaven had not forgotten Peter during those three days. Tell the disciples and Peter how that must have encouraged him and also given him, given him some sort of dread. It is this man who wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a new and living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's that first bit of first Peter, but he doesn't stop there. In the next several verses, he speaks of our inheritance that is stored up for us in heaven, that is undefiled and will not fade away. And he speaks of joy in trials, of testing by fire. I think he knew a lot about those two things. But he also speaks of glory and honor and praise due to our Savior. All of this and more in just a handful of verses and then he calls attention to the fact that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his completed work of salvation, the abundant mercy of God pours forth in an incredible way, such magnitude that it absolutely transcends nature. And then 
having said all of that, he begins to talk about the prophets of old, that they were given insight into the entire salvation story. And Peter was an eyewitness to the fulfillment of all that the prophets had foretold. And he begins to write in verses 10 through 12. And as we read this, I just wonder if you will agree with me. Did he have the mercy seat in mind as he wrote these words? Verse 10, 1 Peter chapter 1. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. You remember the mercy seat with the angels looking down on that solid golden slab? They are looking at the mercy of God. Once a year during the Day of Atonement, the high priest was only on this one day permitted to go behind the veil not without much washing and great deal of bloodshed. And he would pour out the blood of sacrifice on that mercy seat. And the angels the whole time modeled there are looking down at the mercy seat. Angels know nothing of the mercy of God until they see it come alive in our lives. They are created beings. They are not redeemed by a blood sacrifice. And so they are so curious about mercy in our lives. And this word that describes their look, into which angels long to look, it's a Greek word pronounced parakupto. And parakupto means that you stoop down to a thing in order to examine it, great curiosity, in order to understand what is going on, to become acquainted with something. And if the angels want to become acquainted with mercy, if they want to understand it, they see it played out in your life and in mine. And very often I wonder when the angels are stooping down to look at a thing, to understand it, are they saying to themselves, aha, that's what mercy looks like at work. Or do they look at me sometimes and say, does she know how mercy works? What is going on with this woman? Is somebody going to come around and help her figure this thing out? Whatever it is, the angels are in awestruck wonder at what they see God do for you and for me because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Paracupto. I love the word. Just as we read it there in Peter's writing, his epistle, the very first time the word is used in, in the New Testament is describing Peter. And I don't think there's any coincidence that our attention here by this first mention is drawn to the morning of the resurrection. And I want you to see what, I, what has blown my mind for many, many years now. In Luke chapter 24, verse 12, this is the first mention of Paracupto. And it describes Peter, who runs to the empty tomb and Paracupto, stooping down, he examines the linen grave clothes with great curiosity, trying to understand what in the world is going on here. Now, John, the beloved, uses the same word, parakupto, to describe another 
happening on that same resurrection morning. So turn to John chapter 20. We'll read verses 11 and 12 and see how John uses this word. John chapter 20, verses 11 and 12. Again, as I said, this is the morning of the resurrection. After discovering the body of Christ is gone and the whole flurry of activity that was going on had abated somewhat, here we find Mary Magdalene standing outside the tomb weeping. And John writes that as she wept, she stooped, paracupto, and looked, paracupto, into the tomb. And what does she see? She saw two angels in white, one sitting at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. Y'all, it is the mercy seat in the garden tomb. That just astounds me. And within moments, Mary's got her arms around the risen Lord. These two angels are sitting not on a a slab of gold, and they are not golden cherubim in model form. These are the real deal angels sitting on a stone slab where the blood of Jesus had been poured out. Here is the mercy seat, the real deal. All those thousands of years before when God gave Moses the blueprints and said, build it like the one I showed you. Did he get a glimpse into the garden tomb on that morning when those two angels were sitting there just as we saw pictured in the description in Exodus? It's amazing to me. And the angels must just look at us and marvel. Paracupto, look at a thing to see what in the world is going on here. And they must just shake their heads in wonder at that blood-bought redemption relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. I think this awestruck, angelic wonder is pictured there in the tabernacle. Then we see it in the garden tomb, and then someday soon and very soon, we will see it in glory. And the blood-bought relationship will strike us like it has never done before. As we are told in Revelation, John was told, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he turned to look, and he saw a lamb as if slain. And we will see him there bearing the marks of his crucifixion on him. And there's more. Y'all, this is just the tip of the iceberg for the mercy seat. We are going to put the study in Bible study. So bear with me as we do a little bit of uh, investigation. Because I want to see how God describes the value of the mercy seat. So turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And as you're going there... The preceding verses in the book of Romans, and I'm talking about clear back to chapter 1, Paul is just putting humanity on trial. And his case is based on the fact that there is none righteous. No, not one. And then he rightly describes that man is sinful from head to toe, inside and out. And then he declares in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. The word justified here is an accounting 
term. Paul is talking about something even higher than forgiveness. Justified describes the blood-bought sinner whose record is not just forgiven. And that would have been enough. But we are not only forgiven, our record has been wiped out. Psalm 103 verse 12 tells us, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgression from us. Who could, who could possibly be worthy of such a gift? I could just look around this room right here, and I know there's going to be a run on mercy and a run on grace because we are guilty, and that guilt can make us miserable. And yet, God has issued that open invitation to come boldly. And I know this is true because I war against the flesh. I know that's common. And you guys are just like me. And you, like I, am in need of ample doses of mercy and grace. And God freely bestows those things on us in the beloved. I know that if I confess my sin because of the sacrifice of the Son, my Heavenly Father will be true to Isaiah 43, 25. Isaiah 43, 25 says that he will wipe out my transgressions and remember my sins no more. And then that brings us to Romans 3, 25, where we left off. Speaking of our redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed as publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. Now there's a lot in there, but what I want to go is to this church word, this fancy schmancy church word, propitiation. And we're going to spend the bulk of the rest of our time on this single word, propitiation. Uh, it's the Greek word hilasterion. Hilasterion is the word that the writer of Hebrews uses in chapter 9, verse 5, when he's giving a physical description of the mercy seat. Hilasterion, mercy seat, hilasterion is propitiation. So you could translate Romans 3.25, saying that Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a mercy seat in his blood through faith, and we have different forms of that same Greek root word various places in the New Testament. And I want to show you a few of them. You can write down the references for your notes, but we're going to go through these pretty quickly. In 1 John chapter 2, 2, God uses a form of this Greek word, hilasterion, when he says, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. 1 John 4.10 In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Excuse me. <clears throat> and the last one, Hebrews 8, 12, for I will be merciful. That word merciful is a form of the word hilasterion. 
I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And as long as you're making notes, remember that in Hebrews 9.5, the word mercy seat is this same Greek word. I don't know about you, but I get really confused. Listen, if the words grace and mercy confuse me, can you imagine what propitiation has done to me? And it bothers me because my dad instilled in me a desire, a need to know what words mean. When I was just a girl, about 10 years old, and I, all my remembrances seemed to come from 10 years old. It must have been just a real, you know, pivotal time in my life, an epoch, really. And so I can remember being in a tree in my backyard, and I was hurling insults over the fence and over the alley to the teenage boy in the yard behind our house. And he was hurling insults back. And so back and forth we go. And in the middle of all my scathing invectives, I say to this boy, you're corroded. And I hear over my shoulder down on the ground, Martha. So I shinny down the tree. Yes, sir. And here I am expecting the lecture, the dreaded lecture. And I got something that really surprised me. My dad, instead of giving me a lecture, said, what does corroded mean? And I said, I don't know. Now, y'all, being a parent and a grandparent, this cracks me up. We weren't saved in this era, and I miss my dad so much. I loved him dearly. But I tell you, it cracks me up when I look back on it and think, just skip right over the child's behavior to make sure that vocabulary mastery is achieved. <laughs> so he said to me, don't ever use a word if you don't know what it means. Go look it up. So I went in the house and I looked up corroded. And I said, I was right. That boy is corroded. <laughs> so lesson learned. But here we are. Propitiation, I want to know what it means. I don't want to just understand it vaguely in context. I want it to be a working part of my vocabulary and understand what God is conveying to me here. So I went to my Bible dictionary. Wonderful blessing, all the study tools we have available to us. And so avail yourself. And usually a Bible dictionary is a great tool. On this particular case, however, when I looked at propitiation, I found out that it means expiation. So I said, okay, so I'll look up expiation. And do you know what I found out it meant? Propitiation. This is hardly helpful. So in my study, what I like to do then is go to an etymology dictionary. And I want to find out what does this English word mean? Why did the translators use this word propitiation to convey that Greek or, if it's in the Old Testament, that Hebrew thought? And this was such a blessing to me when I discovered that the propitiation, the word we called propitiation, is from the Latin. And I don't speak Latin, but I think it's probably pronounced Propitare. So propitare is a Latin word that means to render favorable, to be gracious, to be kind. And it comes from two different Latin words. The first one is pro. So if you think of all the pro words you know, in fact, you even make lists of pros and cons. Pro means forward. So if you've got a list of pros and that wins out over the cons, you know you're going to move forward, right? But there's proceed, profess, uh, give me a pro word, protect, and the other ones that you said that I couldn't hear. But yes, <laughs> so pro means forward. The second word is petere, and it means go to, seek, 
It implies a rushing toward. So you put these two words together and a word picture emerges that transcends even its definition. It is, it is a picture of someone who is rushing forward, seeking, if you will, to be gracious, to be kind, to render or restore to favor the one who is being sought. And as soon as that picture came to my mind, I immediately thought of the father of the prodigal son, who seeing his son a far way off, leapt down the road, running to, to his son, not to bar his way and slap him down and chastise him, but to, with only reconciliation on the father's heart, to take that robe of righteousness and wrap it around his son and to put a ring on his finger as a mark of sonship and new shoes on his feet. We are shed with the, the shod with the gospel of peace, completely reconciled to the father. To me, that is what this word propitiation means. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And in a nutshell, that's what the day of atonement was all about. It was the day that the high priest would go back in, as I said before, and offer the blood of atonement for his own sin as well as for the sin of the nation. And I learned just recently that as time went on, the Hebrews began a practice. It's not in the scripture, but we have it from Josephus and I think other historians who said that as time went on, the Jewish people began to think, you know, what happens if that guy goes back there on that one day a year? And he displeases the Lord, and the Lord executes him back there. How are we going to get him out? What are we going to do? So according to this tradition, they began to tie a rope around his ankle. So if he dropped it in there, they'd be able to yank him out. And then I discovered just recently that one of the uh, practices of the Roman soldiers, when someone was being crucified and they were walking to the place of crucifixion, they would tie a rope around the ankle of that condemned man or woman, and then every so often on the road, they just yank their feet out from under them, crash them to the ground. Just another humiliation. More shame, more suffering heaped on our Savior so that he could become our propitiation. And it breaks my heart. Turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 9. We know that the high priest could only enter the Holy of Holies under very strict conditions on that one day a year. It was a model of the throne room in heaven. And here in Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 11, we are going to see our great high priest at work on our behalf. Verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And I don't know how it happened, but somehow I believe that Jesus gathered up every drop of blood that he shed, and he went into the real deal and presented it as an offering to the Father. And the Father was satisfied with the sacrifice of the Son. Look what it says here in verse 22. Jump down. 
And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Jesus Christ leapt off his throne in glory, rushing forward to meet you when you were still a far way off with only kindness and reconciliation, with only mercy and grace in his heart to all who would receive it. And like the prodigal son, the only thing we can do is throw ourselves on the mercy, on the father's mercy. And I see a, a picture of that. I'll let you look this one up for yourself, but for your notes, first Chronicles chapter 21, we read of the sin of David when he numbered the people. And he did that in direct disobedience. And God is going to judge David in that account by giving him three choices. You can have one of three things. And David, he knew and he loved the merciful nature of God. He understood that God did not need to learn mercy, but that he is mercy. And David threw himself on the mercy of God who sent his son, his only begotten son, to be our atonement, to pay the price once and for all. Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. He is our propitiation yesterday, today, and forever. I love to consider that after those three nights when Jesus was not with them, the risen Savior met with Peter. Can you imagine what that must have been like? I imagine it was difficult for Peter to look him in the eye. He humbled himself, though, and he believed God. He took God at his word, and Peter received. He accepted mercy and forgiveness. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he began a fruitful ministry that is a blessing to us, even to this good day. After abject failure... Those men that I mentioned at the very beginning who carried around dead rods for the rest of their lives as a daily reminder of their failure. Do you know that there's an historian that records that Peter nearly every day of his life till the end of his life had someone crow at him when he walked by as a continual reminder of his failure in denying Jesus. And yet Peter continued on in the faith. He was not failure free. I am not failure free. But Peter knew that the way of restoration was a beeline straight to the mercy seat and he took it. If you ever, or I should say when you find yourself in that old fisherman's shoes, an abject failure and miserable over it, what will you do? Will you remember that God has issued an open invitation that you just can boldly come? Your guilt is taken care of if you have accepted Christ. And now you can enter into the holy place because the veil is no longer there. It was his flesh 
torn, and now the way is open. There is nothing to bar the way between you and fellowship with the Most High God at the mercy seat. Will you believe God and receive his mercy? Not just today, but ever after today. His mercy, it's new every morning. It's waiting there for us to access. Peter's very last written words are precious. I love to read with the idea in my mind that here was this man who had come to the end of his journey and he's closing his thoughts in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. And I think when Peter speaks about something like this, I take it seriously because he knows what he's talking about. And he gives us an encouragement. In 2 Peter 3.18, he says, But grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if we are doing that, we will walk in victory, not in misery. And with Peter, we will be able to proclaim to him the God of glory. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you have invited us to draw near to your throne of mercy and grace. Lord, we know we come by the blood of Christ alone, and we are like those angels. We're just filled with wonder at the work of your salvation. And we are full of gratitude. And Lord, we praise your name. Thank you so much, Father God, for giving your son. He is our Lord and Savior. He is our mercy seat, and it's in his name, that name that is above all names, that we pray. And the bride of Christ said, amen.